Can he have it both ways? It seems like he wants to have his cake and eat it too. It is the week of November 15th, and welcome to episode 106 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Sarah Stewart, Executive Director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Megan Stiefel, founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, senior fellow at NSI and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we are talking all things China. Leaders of China's Communist Party recently set the stage for President Xi Jinping to extend his rule and passed a historical resolution, only the third of its kind since the founding of the party, that symbolically raises Xi to the level of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. What does this mean for both Xi influence within China and for greater U.S.-China relations, including U.S.-China military competition? And how does recent rumblings that President Joe Biden may adopt a no-first-use nuclear policy play into everything? That and more on this episode of Fault Lines. Squad, we are taking a big risk here. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping will have a virtual summit in about six hours. We are, so we are recording this before the summit. Our listeners will not hear the podcast until after the summit. So we have a chance here to look either very wise or very foolish. And I know you all embrace that opportunity. So Sarah, Xi Jinping has you know, recently set himself up for an unprecedented third term in power in China. Uh, he has been named in this goofy uh, Communist Party resolution as the paramount leader, putting him up at the level of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Uh, it's, not, it's not any kind of real democratic process or anything that's even really a legitimate political stamp of approval. It is basically him commanding his cadres to approve him for this thing that he wants since he's now grabbing total power in China. How, how do you think that phenomenon, and clearly this is the part of the lead up into the summit tonight, how do you think that power move even if it's all optics, is going to help Xi Jinping or hurt Xi Jinping as he engages in the economic aspects of the conversation with Joe Biden? I think that's a great question. And I think that we're going to really have to come back to this, you know, afterwards and see how well we did on, you know, using our crystal ball. Here's my take. I think that by all accounts, we are setting this virtual meeting up to be a strategically focused meeting. And so it doesn't surprise me that he's taking, you know, uh, moves domestically to, you know, build up his power and his, you know, the durability of his, of his reign. Um, I think that both sides are coming into this with very different viewpoints on how this is going to go. And so that's why I think it could be a little bit of a showdown. I also think it's going to be interesting because it's going to be virtual and anybody who's ever, you know, negotiated with a counterpart, particularly a tough counterpart, um, knows that you really have an advantage when you're in the room, reading body language, seeing what the rest of the delegation is doing. So I think it's going to be really hard to do this virtually. But the way I'm looking at it is there's a few key things that have happened in the lead up to tonight's virtual summit. So the the first is that the U.S. announced a strategy on trade with China back in uh, early October. 
and is still, you know, working to put some meat on the bones. And I know that China is probably looking at that very closely and waiting with bated breath. Uh, last week, the U.S. and the EU, or maybe two weeks ago now, announced a steel and aluminum agreement where they were going to, the U.S. is going to drop the tariffs on EU steel and aluminum. And the two sides are going to be looking at a common target, um, China, that has structural excess capacity for steel. Uh, the U.S. and Japan just uh, started, just reached a commercial and industrial partnership agreement. They're going to be looking at working on similar things. Um, you've got Ambassador Tai and Commerce Secretary Raimondo in Asia this week, but not China. Uh, they're meeting in, in Delhi and in South Korea and in Tokyo. Uh, so I think that delivers a, a message. Um, you've got China feeling antagonized by by statements that the U.S. has made about Taiwan. Uh, So all of these things are contributing to tonight's event. But one thing happened at the end of last week that I think was really surprising to me anyway, which is that the U.S. and China reached an agreement on climate that they announced at COP26. I think a lot of people are very skeptical about whether or not this is something with any there there. But Maybe it shows a little bit of a crack or an opening for the two sides to be working together. So I think tonight, which she's going to be hoping for to show, you know, to, to show his country is some flexibility by the U.S. in working with him on uh, trade, investment, supply chains. I think he's also going to be looking for some indication that the U.S. isn't going to pass some sweeping, you know, China bills. Uh, and that, you know, he's really looking for for relations to thaw. I think he's also going to be looking for a affirmation very strongly that the U.S. position on Taiwan has not changed. And I think on the U.S. side, we're going to see Biden looking for kind of the opposite, um, some indications about what China is going to do to address forced uh, labor and human rights uh, and you know how they're going to de-escalate the the issues on on Taiwan and deal with some of these outstanding trade irritants. So I think there's a lot in play. Uh, I'm really interested to see how it turns out and if I got any of this right. Yeah, again, we're all we're all taking some pretty big risks here with our with our listenership. Jamil, uh, I want to ask you about the public diplomacy going into this uh, into this virtual summit. We talked about Xi Jinping getting this. Airsat's resolution from his Communist Party friends about how he's uh, in the top three now of Chinese leadership. Not that it really means anything, except for he got them to do it. Uh, Joe Biden, on the other hand, is going to have a signing ceremony today for his bipartisan infrastructure bill, which uh, a number of Republicans in the Senate and a couple of handfuls in the House supported. It's a trillion dollars or more for some, some real needs here in the United States. Uh, so he's got a little bit of a, I would say, maybe perhaps in a way smaller, but a more real accomplishment under his belt going into this meeting. How do you think those optics are going to play out tonight when these two guys talk? Yeah, look, I mean, Les, I think that obviously um, these sort of internal dynamics of demonstrating strength, they matter more, I think, for for the home audience than they really do for the for the uh, for the other side. I mean, you know, how much does, does 
Does President Xi care that Biden got his infrastructure bill done? Probably not at all. How much does, you know, does President Biden care that Xi is now in the in the group of the great, you know, the goat of, of China, the goats of China, right? The greatest of all times of China, um, you know, noted, not, not particularly interesting. But I think for the home audience, right, um, looking back and saying, look, I'm demonstrating strength both at home and abroad. Um, uh, is something that both of these leaders want to be able to sort of, you know, impress upon their counterpart, right? And the idea being that um, if I can impress upon them that I'm strong at home and, and, and have the backing of my people, I can go in with more authority and, and, and seek the things that I want for my nation, right? Or for my, uh, for my interests or whatever uh, thing that I'm trying to assert. Now, the question though, I think uh, as, as Sarah's correctly laid out is what are the interests the U.S. is going to be, is looking to lay out, right? What is it that we're going to look there, look to President Biden to defend, right? Are we going to argue that we, that we will there, be there to protect Taiwan if in fact the Chinese were to come across uh, the Taiwan Straits, right? Will we talk about uh, the oppression of over a million Muslims in the Xinjiang province uh, uh, Uyghur, of Uyghur descent. Are we going to talk about uh, the fact that while we have made a climate deal, there's a lot more work to be done on that front? Are we going to talk about the fact that our supply chains are disrupted because of, of, of challenges on both sides of the Atlantic, not just challenges in our own, in our own country, right? Are we going to be tough with China? Are we going to demonstrate the America, that America is willing to stand strong and stand up to a resurgent China? Or uh, will we continue to sort of say nice things, talk, you know, moderately tough, but not really stand behind it and demonstrate once again that we're not really, we don't really have the conviction of our own words, right? And I think that's going to be the key question for President Biden. Will he be able to convince G, whatever he says, right, regardless of how tough a stance he takes, that he means it? Uh, because he tried that with Vladimir Putin a few months back in a in a, in a in-person uh, meeting when we talked about cyber and the like, um, and it wasn't successful. And and you, we we could disc- we discuss for a million for a millionaires why it wasn't successful, or or you know whether he might have success in the future. But the question today before us is: Will President Biden take the tough stand, and will he convince G of his of his it, that he's actually that is actually where he is? Megan, uh, I want to go to you first of all. Welcome to the podcast. We're thrilled to have you join us. I'm happy to be here. So, what's your assessment of? What's going on in China in in terms of Xi Jinping has been cracking down almost across the board on big companies, on capitalists, even on celebrities. Uh, we're hearing from our our usual China experts that oh, there's this is part of a hundred year plan, and China thinks long term. I'll t- I'll tell you, to me, it seems like an old fashioned power grab. This is someone who's suppressing any other possible rival power center, who uh, a guy who hasn't left the country for two years. This this seems like just old fashioned authoritarianism to me. What's what's your sense of what's going on inside China? Yeah, it does seem that way. Um, and, and I'll first preface my remarks by saying that I'm not an old China hand. Uh, I'm not an expert. So. That makes my take an out-of-the-box take, right? Um, chaos is a bit of kind of what it seems, right? You have, as you mentioned, all of these crackdowns, they're banning dancing, they're telling people who develop movies that they need to be more sort of old-timey and more consistent with the party's principles. Um, you have them really kind of trying to, it appears, uh, limit the ability for those who've kind of led the resurgence of China in the past 10 to 20 years, um, kind of level the playing field. Um, so at the same time, though, I'm, I'm seeing articles that um, the, the administration is sort of talking out of both sides of its mouth, right? You have other people reassuring the the, the Alibaba developers of the world and, and the, kind of the tech titans who have led the, this resurgence and saying, no, 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 we, we really do support the private sector and, and not to worry, nothing, nothing too significant to, to see here. Um, so it, it's, 
certainly, I think, causing a lot of confusion, uh, both, I think, with internally within the country um, and causing concern for investors, both internally as well as externally, um, which makes it a bit hard to figure out how to approach the situation when you when you do see these kind of disconnects but internally. Um, it also sets up a question around what does, is this really intended to reassure those who want to re- have him basically re- be reelected and have this third term that's unprecedented, except for twice, I think. Um, so not quite unprecedented. You know, is this kind of a last ditch effort to make sure that this this will happen and so that he will, he will actually then be in power for another five years following following next year. So uh, I think I'd love to, to pick the the power, uh, excuse me, the, the China hands brains a bit to say, can he have it both ways? It seems like he wants to have his cake and eat it too. I'm interested in what others think. Sarah, one of the things that, that bugs me about um, the talks that we have uh, with China on, um, on economic matters and trade is that the data coming out of China seems unreliable to me, right? We're relying on the Chinese government to tell us about their economic growth and uh, what's happening in their country. Those numbers are totally unreliable. We've seen a lot of anecdotal evidence that the the COVID pandemic and subsequent um, shutdowns of various cities has led to real changes in their in their economic growth patterns. Is is does the fact that there may be this political and economic weakness in Beijing impact the conversation that's going to ha- happen tonight and and where we end up in this critically important conversation about about trade between the world's two biggest economies? I think it's a great point. I mean, the the data issue really permeates a lot of areas. Um, trade is is a key one. The U.S. has been uh, fighting on this front at the World Trade Organization for many many years to get uh, more verifiable data uh, from from China. Um, I think that there are some independent ways to for the U.S. to build its own data set, and I think that it does. And so I think that you know, when looking at, you know, what the U.S. strategy is going to be and what the U.S. is looking for, um, it will be relying on, you know, on, on, on its own assessments, (laughs) not necessarily those that are, are just coming out of China. And I think taking into account the veracity, the lack of veracity and, and comprehensiveness of the data. That, that they could get from the Chinese. So I, I think that they're pretty well, they'll be pretty well prepared, um, you know, to, to deal with that. Jamil, um, I know we're going to talk about developments on the, on the military side uh, in the next segment, but what's, what's your, what's your gut rea- reaction to what I think is kind of some overwrought uh, PR uh, pushes from the Chinese side that they seem to be uh, kind of puffing up Xi Jinping in a way that really reveals that there there may not be as much there as we think. How is how is how should Joe Biden use that to his advantage today? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of discussions, and you know, on the podcast we've talked a lot, um, including with Carmen Medina, about you know how, how real is what we perceive as 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 this sort of expansionist move in China and um, and sort of their stability, their internal stability, and the like. Um, uh, there's at least some suggestion out here, I think, with this with the sort of puffery as you describe it, um, uh, that that might say that that Xi doesn't think his position is as strong as it ought to be domestically, um, and that he's concerned. I mean, Carmen has flagged this for us a number of times that we tend to you know think of China as twenty feet tall. Um, in this country, when in fact, um, they have a lot of concerns domestically. Um, uh, and, you know, and we see them now we see them engage in other kinds of expansion, right? We see 
uh, their nuclear modernization efforts. We see this uh, this testing of hypersonic missiles. We see um, uh, they're building of more nuclear silos. The DOD released a report earlier this year that indicated that they will have by 2023, I believe, uh, nearly or 2024, nearly nearly a thousand nuclear warheads, uh, which is a three x increase over over where we are. To, sorry, 2030. Uh, but that's a huge increase over where we are today for them, a, a shadow of what the U.S. and Russia have. It's still a massive increase for the Chinese. So, you know, it, it's hard to know what to make of this puffery. Is it simply, you know, what what what, you know, authoritarian states do? And it's just sort of, you know, run of the mill. Or does it bespeak a concern uh, that's broader and more and more and, and should embolden us to say that we, you know, China is not as strong as we think we as we think they are, and, and perhaps there may be some weaknesses for us to take advantage of. That's an interesting question. I, I don't I don't know the answer, but an interesting question. Again, I'm interested in your take on the fact that Xi Jinping has not left China for almost two years. Right? He skipped out on the G20 a couple of weeks ago. He skipped out on COP26, the climate negotiations in Scotland last week. He's doing this summit with Joe Biden virtually. It's it that's that normally uh, an authoritarian leader who's not willing to leave his country is kind of demonstrating that he's afraid to leave his country. What, what's your take on that, on this kind of odd phenomenon we're seeing? Yeah, I think there's also the, the flip side of it, which is to say that he, he wants to present the view that he's has is in such a position of strength that he doesn't need to leave the country that we'll all come to him or we'll all tolerate this kind of failure to to show up literally in person um and that china can can project power through through a protected position without having to to meet leaders in person um but it is yeah i mean it's it's quite remarkable it, you know i think i can't remember if it was in these notes or some other conversation that we were having and someone was saying maybe it was on my twitter feed this morning about it's beginning to look like pyongyang um <laughs> Um, so what do we, I mean, I, I would be, if I were in my old role, I'd be interested in hearing like, what is this man's health as anybody? I mean, we do see him, right. But do we see him? Um, what else is going on there? That's making this, uh, that's continuing this reluctance of, of in-person attendance at, at events. I guess yeah, I'm not the I'm, only one. I'm wonders. hoping we can all start using the term Pyongyangization to describe the Xi Jinping, uh, policy changes. Sarah, thank you. Thank you for laughing at that. I see you on the Zoom. Thank you. I appreciate that. Pyongyangization is just going to start rolling off people's tongues. Let's flex to uh, topic number two, uh, most of which Jamil has has already foreshadowed with some of uh, the news he was dropping a few minutes ago. There have been a lot of developments uh, in the news on the military front between the U.S. and China. China launched a hypersonic missile, famously, that went all the way around the globe, really made people realize that they may be ahead of us in this um, kind of niche new technology, could be impactful on both for both nuclear weapons and non-nuclear weapons. As, as Jamil noted, China's nuclear arsenal of nuclear missiles itself is expanding, uh, much and, and notably expanding at a higher rate than we realized, a significantly higher rate, uh, rate than we had realized before. Uh, China's providing sophisticated naval vessels to Pakistan, which, is, which potentially changes some of the dynamics in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, it's launching a newfangled high-tech aircraft carrier of its own design as early as next year. Uh, notably in the press a few days ago were these, these diagrams that had been created in the, in the Chinese desert so that they could bomb something that had the, the look of U.S. naval ships, uh, aircraft carriers and the like. Very provocative. Meanwhile, 
the Biden administration is considering a change in our nuclear posture. There's nuclear posture review going on. Many administrations go through this uh, this process. And there's been some news in the last few days that uh, President Biden may decide to adopt a no essential what is what is called by some a no first use policy of nuclear weapons. Jamil, I'm just going to give you a real big fat pitch here. What do you think of President Biden possibly adopting a no first use nuclear policy? I mean, I'm not sure why we would engage in sort of unilateral disarmament when it comes to our nuclear policy. This is a nuclear policy that we've had um, uh, since the since the beginning of the Cold War, since the advent of nuclear weapons. It has kept the world safe, frankly, from nuclear holocaust, um, uh, uh, not 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 being willing to potentially use nuclear weapons first if it came to that. Um, And so. Um, this idea that we would abandon sort of a core tenet of American uh, nuclear policy that has kept the world stable, I think, is a, is a huge mistake. It would be one thing if we were engaged with a number of the nuclear weapon states uh, across the globe and everyone were to adopt a no first use policy. That's not what we're doing. This would be unilateral disarmament. It's a mistake. Um, and uh, I think that I hope the president reconsiders uh, going down this road because uh, I think it would be it could actually be very destabilizing um, uh, if if our if our adversaries, some of whom like China, are growing their nuclear arsenal by three x, um, understood that that the U.S. would only use nuclear weapons in response uh, to a nuclear attack. Megan, um, interested in your thoughts on this, and then and then also kind of going back to one of the things we talked about earlier about how China is kind of closing it, itself off from the rest of the world. And, you know, Xi Jinping is staying home. Uh, we're seeing uh, crackdowns in the technology sector. You know, companies are, are leaving China. Companies are not allowed to operate in China. We're seeing almost total control over the, the journalists who are in China, either they're being thrown out or what they say is being controlled by the government. One of the things uh, China's been doing over the last few years is trying to develop uh, global prominence in certain high-tech sectors, whether it's artificial intelligence or some of these other very, very deep but esoteric issues that that we know are going to be important sectors of the economy in a, in a couple of decades or maybe even earlier. Is it possible for both of those things to happen at the same time in China? Is it possible they can kind of shut down their or at least in part shut down their links to the outside world and then also try to scoot ahead of everybody else in, in these high-tech sectors. So on the first point, the kind of nuclear question, I, I think I'm agreeing with Jamil, um, which is to say, I would not want for there to be a significant change in policy. I don't think that that's in our long-term interest. I think that this idea that we have this ability of ambiguity and that serves us well is, is one that has served us well. So to be a little bit too flip about it, if it ain't broke, don't change it. Um, on the point about kind of the the isolationist sort of approach i would argue that it's i don't know it's it's seemingly it's an apparent one but i don't know that it's one in fact i mean in the sense that what what troubles me or concerns me is we i think still don't know the 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 depths to which our intellectual property has been stolen however you want to phrase that right um so while while u.s companies and 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 may have an apparent less, uh, you know, apparently less access to the market. It doesn't mean that the reverse is also the case. Um, and that, that our, you know, so much has already been taken that it doesn't, um, that they are so far ahead of, of where we actually think that they are, that it's, it's not going to harm them kind of in the least to take this more, more at least domestically isolated approach. I mean, we can think about, there was an article that, that I had missed, um, which we'll come back to, but around, um, 
the acquisition of, of essentially metadata records from not only U.S. telcos, but, but other telcos around the world. And this kind of idea that, that there's so much um, unprotected information in private sector hands that, that, uh, that we're, we're, we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of how far behind we actually are. Now, that may sound like chicken little or something like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. But, but I really do worry that we are, when you think about um, what has been, what we know has been taken and you think about the approaches like Belt and Road and those types of things that we are in a particularly, particularly precarious position, especially when you think about also where we are in standards bodies together with what's gonna happen with the ITU election, you know, this, these swirling things, I think are, I, I worry that we're headed to a quite a dark decade or so in terms of our relationship with China. Sorry to be the pessimist in the group. I think I'm probably in good company though. <laughs> I think we're all, we're all pessimists in our own way on this topic. Sarah, I, I want to push you a little bit more on, on economic questions and try to link it back to the tension in the, in the national security space that, that we're seeing, whether it's, it's nukes or hypersonics or, uh, you know, arms sales to Pakistan or, or new weapons coming online for China, that kind of thing. Uh, in, in, in the, on, the, on the trade front in the past, including in the late Trump administration, there was a political advantage to getting a, a strong trade deal with China, right? It, it's the China in a lot of ways was the other half of the engine that drove the world economy along with the United States. Uh, it's it's this massive um, manufacturing location that that has been you know raised hundreds of millions of people out of poverty an amazing phenomenon uh, and in the past you know American politicians particularly presidents benefited from getting a good strong trade deal with China is that still true when we're when we're seeing this you know kind of I know it's it's overdone, but this new Cold War emerging between the U.S. and China, and and until someone comes up with a better a better name for it, I'm just going to go with new Cold War uh, between the U.S. and China. It's it's not necessarily beneficial to Joe Biden to come to come out of this virtual summit and say, "Hey, I got some pretty good trade terms with Xi Jinping." A lot of people, particularly in the Republican Party, but also the Democrats, are looking to pull apart supply chains. We don't want to be reliant on trade with China. We're looking for other ways to do business. We want to onshore it. We want to ally short. We want to near short. We don't want, we're trying to shut down trade with, with China. We don't want it to damage our economy, but we're looking for alternatives. So with all this, this churning, what's the, what's the potentially good news for the Biden administration coming out of this conversation tonight, while the while the relationship, the fundamental relationship between the two countries seems to have really changed fundamentally over the last couple of years. I think this is a great question. Um, I don't think we're going to see much coming out of the virtual summit tonight. Just by nature of it being virtual, it's only a couple of hours. This is posturing, as Jamil was noting. This is both leaders. You know, I want to don't want to necessarily say pandering, but pandering to their respective countries to show strength, to raise the issues that that they think are the most important. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, it is not, in my view, in the U.S. best interest at this stage to say, great news, we came to a deal with China. They are not ready to be given the present of negotiating towards a deal, because we have yet to see 
China implement the commitments that they made in the phase one deal that the Trump administration negotiated. And this, I know, is going to be a big priority for USTR. Um, It's very hard to trust words um, when we still have very, very serious concerns about intellectual property theft, which Megan mentioned, but also China's systematic, longstanding, very entrenched industrial subsidies policy. And that permeates many sectors in China. They have not walked that back. And so I don't think that there's any reason to believe that we are in a position to actually be negotiating towards something new. I think we need to see some actual cold, hard moves to, you know, for, for China to, to uh, fulfill the commitments that it's already made. And even then, politically, I think it's going to be very difficult because you add forced labor and human rights into the equation, and it's not going to have a huge fan base to do anything, anything with, with the Chinese. I wanted to actually just come back quickly to, to something else that we were talking about. And, um, you know, China has had all of this, uh, you know, military buildup. Um, but yet at the same time, um, there's been this crackdown uh, on, you know, within China domestically, as, as you were just talking about. But I think that something really interesting is also happening here. And if you look at what the Chinese, uh, Xi Jinping in, in, in particular himself, said just recently at the APEC CEOs forum, he showed a very forward-leaning um, stance towards cozying up to the international community. He talked about you know, putting domestic and foreign companies on equal footing in China, which has not been the case and has been a longstanding irritant. There's no details about what that looks like, but that is the international posture that he's taking. And then you add to that China not coming, you know, not sending a leader to the cop, but you know, putting some commitments down on paper with the U.S. on climate change, uh, trying to join CPTPP. So I think that there's kind of a dichotomy going on. And I don't know what exactly it is, but it seems like a throw everything at the kitchen sink strategy where they're feeling like, uh, power might be, you know, sort of slowly, uh, you know, coming out of their grasp. So it's like, okay, well, on the military front, let's build up. And on the trade front, you know, let's show a little bit of leg and maybe try to get into the international community. And But at the same time, let's do crackdowns domestically. Uh, I, it's a little schizophrenic, but it's it's interesting. And I think it's a good insight into what's going on there, um, because there, it, for once, it doesn't seem like a really well thought out strategy. Listeners, I'll just remind you, we're taking some risks here. We're not sure how this uh, virtual summit is going to go tonight. You cannot have good commentary without taking some risks. I've always said that. Uh, be gentle with us if we're 100% wrong about what happens today. All right, Jamil, let's go to the final part of the podcast. What issue are you following that is not on the front page? Well, uh, so earlier today, uh, we had reports that uh, that a Russian satellite uh, 
has been uh, has been destroyed in outer space. Um, so the question becomes, uh, what caused this? Uh, it's suspected to be a direct ascent anti-satellite weapons test, which is to say uh, a, a missile launched from either a ground or a air platform uh, that destroyed the satellite. Um, there, this is uh, a the fourth such test um, in the last year. Uh, we saw a test uh, in December of last year also. Uh, we've also seen uh, Russian satellites um, deploy other satellites, sort of a nesting dolls concept, where they've deployed smaller satellites. Uh, they've, they've, um, they've deployed what they call satellite inspectors, uh, which, have, which have flown near our satellites and gotten close to them and, and, and potentially have the ability uh, not just to take pictures of our satellites and examine them, uh, but potentially uh, you know, either detonate or, or cause uh, problems with our satellites in orbit, knocking them out of orbit or the like. Um, so we've heard an increasing drumbeat of conversations out of U.S. Space Command about the threat posed by uh, the Russians and, and to some extent, the Chinese. Um, and so obviously this is concerning. The, the U.S. Um, uh, depends uh, significantly, uh, the globe depends significantly, but the U.S. in particular depends significantly on our satellite constellations from GPS uh, to, uh, to, uh, to communications and the like, uh, not to mention our intelligence collection. And so... Um, you know, this kind of behavior uh, in outer space is hugely concerning. Um, and the Russians should need to know. And the, and the president needs to make clear as he's making clear stuff to, uh, to President Xi. He's made clear to the Russians and the Chinese, frankly, um, that a threat against our satellite constellations, commercial or military, uh, of any significant measure uh, will be viewed as an attack on the United States or a threat against the United States um, that we'll treat it as such. Uh, you know, beyond that, we need to really think about how to harden our satellite systems, protect them against these threats. And in the long run, honestly, make our satellite constellations much more resilient, rapidly refreshable. Uh, this ability now to launch uh, more, more quickly uh, that commercial companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin and the like have given us is a huge step forward, not just for uh, commercial launch, but also for national security launch um, and, and gives us that ability to rapidly refresh. But of course, you've got to build vehicles uh, that have the capabilities, um, have them available to go up on those satellites, on those launch platforms. Um, that's something we'll still, we still need to get much better at. Sarah. So I'm following a, uh, a little known feature of the U.S.-EU steel and aluminum agreement. A lot has been made about removal of the tariffs and the agreement to cooperate on excess capacity in those sectors. But what a lot of people haven't been talking about is an agreement by the U.S. and the EU to work towards um, trade in low carbon steel and aluminum. And this would be the first ever time that a trade agreement is tied directly towards to the carbon output of the product. And I think it's very timely given the COP26 just went went by and that Congress is thinking about, do we need a carbon border adjustment? Do we want to level the playing field for U.S. producers, particularly in capital intensive industries like steel and aluminum, because they cannot compete with imports that are made with uh, in countries where there are lower environmental standards and lower environmental oversight. So I think it's really timely that the U.S. and the EU are partnering up on this right now. And I'm definitely keeping my eye on it. There's no details other than an announcement that the two sides are going to be working towards an agreement on this. But we're certainly going to be keeping a close, close eye on it. Megan. Well, I suspect mine was in the headlines, but it was six weeks ago, so no longer in the headlines, which is this, this issue that I mentioned a couple minutes ago um, around the acquisition of, of essentially metadata logs um, by a suspected uh, group associated with Chinese intelligence 
apparently it's UNC 1945 is what, what most of the, um, the uh, research community knows them as, but um, 13 telecommunications companies having been compromised going back at least as, 2000, as far as 2019. And again, you think about this like mosaic theory of, of information that's been uh, exposed and then collected, and we don't totally know what the ends to it of it uh, is, this, this data collection. Um, but again, going back to some of these other uh, issues that are swirling around and you think about, as I mentioned, this the International Telecommunication Union uh, election that's coming up and kind of where, where that will fall out, uh, it leaves me continually ongoingly seriously concerned about about what we're how we're going to manage all of this um particularly then when you think about some of the other issues that have been, that have been in the headlines over the past two weeks or so around biometric data that, that facebook is reportedly getting rid of but actually they're probably not because it's sitting in some other data store that they've renamed and so therefore it's you know only two cute by by half um so that's what I'll be looking to follow. So I'm I'm tracking uh, kind of some amazing diplomacy going on in East Africa, where a civil war is raging in Ethiopia. Uh, Tigrayan rebel forces uh, may be advancing on Addis Ababa, which would be a colossal, potentially colossal tragedy, loss of life, and uh, and other casualties of the human spirit uh, in Ethiopia. We're starting to see a lot of regional actors. Uh, President Kenyatta from Kenya. Uh, President Museveni from Uganda are becoming involved in negotiations between the two sides. Uh, former head of, Nigerian head of state Abasanjo is the is the designated AU leader of these conversations. And Tony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, is actually going out there in the next couple of days to help advance these efforts. Uh, so some more high level attention in a place that badly needs it. Let's hope. Uh, and pray that those efforts are successful in averting a real calamity. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Bridget Neff Hickman for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 